Hello, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. You know the drill. I posted last week a new installment in the history of the United States and 100 Objects on Patreon for patrons only. This one was about the John Winthrop Alchemical Physician's Chair, and that is an object that I think is particularly freighted with symbolic meaning and is maybe the most complex of the objects in the series since I suppose number two, which was on the Berger figurine from the Mississippian civilization. So if you're interested, please go become a patron and you can hear all of it on Patreon. Now, I was going to also take a clip, as I sometimes do, from that patron-only lecture and put it on SoundCloud and other platforms for people to hear, a little teaser, as they call it. Uh, But since it's almost the end of the year, I figured I would also comment a bit on this wonderful, (laughs) beautiful year in the neighborhood, uh, the year as it's unfolded for this podcast and give an update on where things stand in terms of the audience and the reach and follow up a bit on comments I made on the broader social and political situation during this pandemic, which I referred to some earlier back in March. And just give a thank you to my patrons. I'm now up to 90. And then uh, give that little clip randomly selected about the Winthrop Alchemical Physician's Chair. So as for this podcast for historian-splaining, While it has undeniably been a very difficult and taxing year for the world, for the United States, and for myself personally, like many other people, nonetheless, it has not been the worst year for podcasts, just to be fully honest. Podcasts offer a way to engage in conversation without the risk of passing on a virus, at least certainly not an actual biological, literal biological virus. I think it probably offers a lot of people a way to get some perspective and a broader view of what's happening and how to interpret it. So the audience for Historian Splaining has definitely grown this year, and so has the patronage. But still, it is also a double-edged sword. While I've gained a lot of listeners, and I've gained a good number of new patrons, especially in the past couple of months, uh, there also have been several who have canceled, and who have said more or less explicitly that they just don't have the money. Uh, You know, and they can't afford any kind of extra entertainment expenses at all. So, you know, we're at this point where the audience may grow, but there's a real limit and ceiling on what most people can offer. Nonetheless, as I said, I I have gained more patrons and I've also been able to have more interaction and contact with 
my wide variety of patrons who live in different parts of the country and even different parts of the world. Some I've communicated with and gotten to know of who they are and how they view things. And it's very interesting to see the, the variety of, of tastes and perspectives that can come together around just a general history podcast. And also for the first time, I was able to meet a patron in person whom I didn't already know before, who wasn't already a friend or acquaintance. Previously, we were able to meet up and have tea in the yard <laughs> outside of my parents' house, which was a really interesting new experience. You know, I guess you could say a little tiny taste of minor celebrity. As for what is drawing people in, well, this year on SoundCloud, which is the main platform that I deal with directly, the tracks that have gotten the most plays by a pretty pretty wide margin just in the past year are, first of all, Back to the Dark Age, how people adapted to the fall of the Roman Empire, which maybe was very unintentionally timely. <laughs> and that one's had over 1,800 plays. And it's followed then by Myth of the Month 11 on the 1619 Project and the Spanish Flu Part 1. And each of those have had over 1,400 plays. On YouTube, the whole platform and algorithm work very differently. It does not prioritize newly posted tracks in the same way. It sort of shuffles things by theme and interest. And so on YouTube, my most played tracks have been Spanish and Portuguese expansion and Judaism. What is it and where did it come from? And each of those has had over 2,000 plays on YouTube. As for my followers, presently I have 310 on SoundCloud and 664 on YouTube, an unknown number of others who follow via other platforms and apps through the RSS feed. And so I can safely say that I, I definitely have over 1,000 regular listeners through the various channels, probably somewhere somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 frequent listeners. And as for who these people are beyond my patrons who contribute, there's a lot, of course, I don't know, but SoundCloud provides interesting statistics. Out of about 46,000 plays that there have been on SoundCloud over this past year, about 29,000 of them have been in the U.S., so that's about 63%, less than two-thirds. And the runners-up outside of the United States, there have been over 1,000 each in the U.K., Canada, Australia, and Sweden. And beyond those, there have been over 100 each, which I take to indicate at least one frequent listener. There have been over 100 in 22 other additional countries which are Ireland, Norway, New Zealand, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, Japan, Denmark, India, Russia, Israel, Belgium, South Africa, Switzerland, Brazil, Morocco, Malaysia, Austria, Poland, Finland, France, and the UAE. And as for the specific cities, just the top 10 cities have over 400 plays each, which probably indicates several frequent listeners. And those top 10 counting down are Minneapolis, Seattle, Chicago, Dublin, Ireland, Portland, Oregon, Oslo, Norway, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Stockholm, Sweden, Boston, and New York City.
So it is interesting to see how the tendrils reach out through this new instrument of the internet to find different people who might be interested in what you have to say. And as I've said many times, you know, this is not a political podcast, it's a historical podcast, but people tend to be interested in what kind of historical grounding, what different perspective that might bring on current situations. And something I've talked about over and over again, which I think holds true in 2020, is this crisis of institutional failure and of the strain of the social fabric. So I'll refer back to something I said along those lines back in March when the impact of this pandemic was really just coming into view in the United States. And I said that when big disasters hit, you know, disasters are a repeating fact of life. And when they hit, if they are handled poorly and if they have a lot of harmful repercussions, it's not generally because of individual failure. It's not because some sort of dark recess of human nature comes out and people sort of descend into savagery like Hollywood movies would have you think. Rather, it's more often because of institutional failure. And even if you go back to, say, the conversation that I had with my friend Sonia about depictions of the 1980s on television, we discussed Chernobyl and how Chernobyl, the Chernobyl catastrophe, was depicted on TV. And one of the things we noted was how the series shows a lot of individual heroism of power plant workers, mine workers, scientists, and even a fair number of government officials who went to great lengths and made great sacrifices to contain and mitigate that disaster and protect the public. And everyone owes a great debt of gratitude to those people, even as, meanwhile, the Soviet government and the party apparatus really did not cover themselves in glory and really were more characterized by inertia and denial. That sort of portrayal of Chernobyl may have been very flattering to American sensibilities, but as Sonia expressed, that doesn't mean that Americans should be smug or self-satisfied when looking at that aspect of the Chernobyl story. And we shouldn't be too complacent that we can't end up in a similar situation ourselves. And it's remarkable that she, I think, expressed those thoughts in <laughs> the winter of 2020, kind of on the cusp of when we were about to learn that this pandemic was global. And I'm not going to say that this situation is somehow the same as Chernobyl or this is our Chernobyl. You know, that's the kind of facile analogy that I tend to avoid. But we should notice that in some similar ways, we can praise our so-called essential workers people in health services and food service and transit who, by and large, have shown a tremendous degree of reliability and a very high level of performance 
you know, people have continued to do their jobs, even under hard conditions and with poor compensation. And the problem is not so much that these essential workers are not doing their jobs, they're not abandoning their posts. It's more that the pay and the working conditions that they face has remained basically unchanged, almost as if nothing was happening. There seems to be this kind of assumption of baseline normalcy, as if people don't require special support or special compensation for doing so-called essential work under exceptional conditions. And I can speak to just my own neighbors in the small town where I live in New England, some of whom work in a factory that produces consumer items predominantly, but that in part supplies the U.S. military. And hence, many of them have been classed as so-called essential workers because they supply the U.S. military, and they've been simply required to keep going into work and doing their normal shifts while wearing masks and supposedly social distancing, and they have not received any hazard pay or extra compensation. And in this way, they have, for a period of time, they were under even worse conditions than those who had been laid off because they at least could get the unemployment compensation with the extra added dollars that came with this disaster relief package, whereas those who were still employed (laughs) were still getting the low pay that they had before. So in a lot of ways, as we all know, I think, millions of people are being stretched extremely thin, whether that's because they're losing their jobs or their businesses are being shut down or going bust, or because they are working, (laughs) but with the same compensation under more difficult conditions. And meanwhile, there have been benefits. As, As in any disaster, there are always some people who are able to profit and benefit from the crisis. But these benefits are simply funneled to the top. They don't go to these so-called essential workers. They go to a small class of owners and investors who nobody seems to be arguing are doing anything essential, in quotation marks, but nonetheless somehow seem to reap all the rewards. And if we look beyond the so-called essential workers in those industries like transit and communication and food service that are still functioning, there's this broader populace, which are in a very ambiguous, changing, shifting situation with all kinds of possible threats and pitfalls. It is not correct to say that they've received no aid. There has been some help from the government and in some cases, in some isolated cases from employers, but mainly are looking for some kind of assistance from government or charities. And some of that has come through, whether it's extra unemployment insurance or relief checks, something of one sort or another. But the remarkable shortcoming is that there doesn't seem to be any sort of sustained plan or strategy for how to mitigate the impacts of the pandemic for the duration of the disaster. It's all apparently been haphazard and occasional, sometimes coming through at the last minute or sometimes not at all. There's no 
evidence of a sustained strategy and not even a proposal of a sustained strategy. And this is where the lack of confidence in mainstream institutions has, I think, only been exacerbated and intensified. Again, not to make too simplistic a parallel, but just as Chernobyl further undermined, you know, whatever remaining confidence there was in the Soviet regime, so it's it really seems that this crisis of confidence in much of the West today, in the U.S. and other similar countries, has only been exacerbated. And I can't, you know, give a full explanation of that. You know, this is not a political podcast. I'm not a political expert per se. But just to comment briefly, there does seem to be a sort of entrenched idea that the market is a kind of automatic problem solver. The invisible hand of the market will fix our problems and that there isn't really much need for intervention to produce or manage or allocate resources and a sort of entrenched orthodoxy that there isn't any need for any vision or renegotiation of our material or social arrangements beyond just shoring up the market. You could say it's a kind of like a new Hooverism when the stock market crashed in 1929 and created this reverberating economic crisis, Herbert Hoover's attitude was, well, we should just stand back and let the business cycle correct itself. All we need is just confidence. And even when aid, direct aid to citizens has been extended, like the increased unemployment benefits, it's usually been riding on already existing programs. It has not been a sort of concerted new strategy implemented in the face of new problems, but just kind of uh, additions to systems already in place, almost as if this crisis that we're in was just a normal recession and that all that's needed is sort of temporary partial aid to tide workers over until this downturn fixes itself. And it doesn't acknowledge that this problem is caused by an unusual disaster. It is not just part of the business cycle. It's a natural disaster that can be expected to occur from time to time. It's not a surprise that a pandemic has hit. This happens sometimes. As we've said, it happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. But it's infrequent enough that one can sort of choose to imagine in a sense that it's not happening uh, and that it's just going to go away and that nothing fundamentally has to be rethought or renegotiated. And when direct payments, so if we look beyond the unemployment benefits and look at the direct payments, the checks that have been sent out, it's interesting, I think, that those were not couched and referred to as aid or relief, not at first, but they were referred to as a stimulus. And <laughs> a stimulus, you know, when someone can't pay the rent or can't afford food, we don't say that we're stimulating them when we give them money. Rather, the stimulus is in concept directed at something else. It's directed at the economy. And I think this description of direct aid as a stimulus reflects this sort of 
per- persistent mentality that the state does not have to directly ensure that people are clothed or sheltered or housed, even in a disaster, but rather that the state merely has to manage this abstract economy and manage the ups and downs of the business cycle, and then those material needs will just take care of themselves. So I think that in some one can see a sort of pervasive failure across the board in government among different parties and in major institutions and in media to a great degree, a failure to reckon with the nature and scale of the crisis. And it reinforces this widespread sense in the public that the major institutions are insulated and impervious and run by sort of elites who are sheltered from the wider events. And This, in a sense, is a contrast from both the Spanish flu disaster of 1918 to 20 and also the stock market crash and economic collapse in 1929 in the early 30s, where everyone, even if the wealthy and the powerful had more means to weather the disaster, nonetheless, they were affected by it. Wealthy people certainly died of Spanish flu, and many wealthy people lost their fortunes and their businesses in 1929. Whereas today, it seems that somehow policies, laws, institutions have changed such that certain people really can completely insulate themselves and almost act and talk as if nothing is happening. And It's remarkable that even through this catastrophe over the past couple of years, the stock market has continued to go up with some corrections. There's been no crash, despite the widespread poverty, despite bankruptcies, evictions. Nonetheless, the stock market continues to rise. And I think this situation underscores and maybe will even reinforce a sort of subtle shift in thinking that's happened over a much longer period from from the 1600s up to today, where the notion of economics and of the economy have supplanted an older concept of political economy. And the idea of political economy deals with wealth, trade, production, but it also assumed in an, an implicit way that production and movement and consumption of resources were fundamentally political and social questions. It's, it's a political question how resources are used and who has access to what, and hence economy in the sense of, of wealth and management of wealth is inseparable from justice and from awareness of distribution. And this does not mean that political economists in the 15 or 1600s were socialist or that they wanted to see an equal distribution, not at all. But they had a notion of social harmony and the sort of well-being of the social body and tended to argue that the state and other institutions, the church and so forth, had to be aware of and try to guide how goods 
were traded and consumed in order to manage a sort of overall harmony and balance of the different social classes and the different members of the body of society. Whereas this modern notion of economics and the economy that has really taken hold today has separated those things such that there's this kind of just abstraction called the economy that is impervious or disconnected from the actual well-being of people <laughs> and and the social fabric right the the economy is this sort of organic entity that lives on its own and the state has to take care of that as if it was somehow independent of these questions of of justice and of social cohesion and so we can basically if we want we can simply forget or uh, just avoid the idea that individual and social fates are bound up together and that institutions have a duty to look to individual and social well-being in order to survive and maintain their legitimacy. We've all heard a lot of talk, I think, in recent years expressing frustration, disillusionment with so-called elites in quotation marks, and maybe especially in the U.S., in Britain as well, which tend to be very individualistic societies. So there's always been a lot of skepticism and resistance towards listening to the elite or elites in plural. That's always been a very negative, loaded term in the English-speaking world. You know, perhaps it's not surprising that the word's borrowed from French. And what that means, you know, is that, for one thing, these so-called elites in the U.S., in Great Britain have to work very hard to maintain their legitimacy and to maintain public confidence that they that they should exist or serve a legitimate role and the picture is not pretty they're just not doing well at that at all uh, there's a remarkable loss of faith you know we can all talk about the very controversial president who is soon to leave office in the United States but apart from that as presidential administrations might come and go, but Congress remains as the central lawmaking institution as it was created by the framers of the Constitution. And Congress recently hit 13% approval in a recent poll. Other polls put it in the range of about 15 to 20% at best in the United States. And meanwhile, even those polls that tend to be a bit more favorable or optimistic still have the U.S. Congress at over 70% disapproval. Over 70% disapproval. I find it amazing how little this is discussed and how rarely anyone asks the question, how can a governmental regime even function when well over two-thirds of the public disapproves of their performance. How long can that possibly be sustained? And of course, other elites in business, in the academic and intellectual world, religious clergy, are often faring little better. There's remarkable low and still declining confidence in all of these sort of leading institutions. 
And as I said, I think that this current level of frustration is due in in large part to the absence of any sort of concerted positive response or plan of how to deal with this crisis beyond just, you know, haphazard occasional actions couched as a stimulus or something like that. There hasn't been from really any party or group, as far as I can see, a concerted plan of what can be done in a sustained way for the duration of the crisis, continually until the crisis, or at least the the height of the crisis, has been abated. And when things look (laughs) so bad uh, and confidence is so low, it shouldn't be surprising that there's a lot of denialism. People denying all kinds of things, denying the nature or scope of the crisis, denying the efficacy of possible responses or solutions. And I've commented myself in personal interactions that today we seem to be in a kind of age of denial. And that view, I think, has become more mainstream recently, that the sort of theme of this decade seems to be people simply ignoring facts and realities that they don't like, whether you know it's about climate or medical facts or the political losses of their own preferred parties and candidates, uh, denial about the drop in living standards and the loss of crucial industries. You see all kinds of denial uh, on all sides. But at the same time, there's also something else that I realize that's going on that in some ways is sort of the opposite. If denial is choosing not to think that problems and threats exist when, when they do, there's also a lot of paranoia, a great deal of conspiracy theories, fear of mind control, fear of foreign meddling and infiltration. And in some ways, you could say that's the opposite. It's sort of imagining spectral dangers based on very little evidence. And this has sort of led me to rethink to a great degree how I see this denialism and to think that it is really just a secondary phenomenon. It's just a sort of secondary effect of some other deeper situation. And if we put aside for a moment the denialists on the one hand and paranoiacs on the other, I think that there's this very broad and pervasive mood that affects almost everyone. And that broad pervasive mood is simply cynical resignation. The belief that nothing can change. Everything, every system, every institution is corrupt. Every elite is dishonest and self-interested. And that basically nothing can be accomplished by concerted action. And there are people that I know in the area where I live who even even if they are personally optimists and have a fairly sanguine view of human nature, they still maintain that nothing can get done. That even if there are good ideas, including good ideas on different parts of the political spectrum, they just are immediately crushed when anyone tries to actually enact them. And if we think back to the middle of this year, to these events that maybe a lot of us have already forgotten, that there were massive demonstrations just flooding the streets of many major cities around the country, 
Well, we have to ask, well, since that took place, what has changed? Even among people who did organize and create a concerted message and a set of demands and were able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of people in mass actions, even they, it seems, could not get a single statute changed. And more and more, it seems as if the only achievable thing, if you do have a grievance or an idea you want to advance, the only achievable thing is to maybe get one person fired, to target some official or some celebrity (laughs) or corporate employee and sort of shame them until they are fired and excluded from polite society. But nothing seems to amount to an actual institutional or policy or legal change. And in light of this sort of futility, I think it's not surprising that on many parts you see a retreat into aestheticism, into sort of obsession with self-cultivation and self-image, obsession with language and representation, the terminology rather than substance, and this weird phenomenon that has become part of our scuttlebutt today, this idea of canceling or cancel culture, you know, eliminating lone individuals from the public scene, that too is not surprising if that is the only thing that seems to actually affect and have any impact in the world, then it's not surprising that that's what people gravitate to instead of systemic or policy change, which seems to be just totally impossible. So, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the theater? You know, if if that seems to be the picture of things in my personal estimation, then is there no hope? Where does any of this go from here? Well, I would say, of course, there's plenty of hope. You know, there have been plenty of terrible crises that had to lead to one sort of change or another, you know, whether it was the crisis and breakdown of liberal England in the 1910s or the Great Depression in the 1930s, something has to happen. Something has to give. And I think the raw material is all there. As I said, individuals have shown a remarkable level of responsibility and patience and self-sacrifice through this whole situation. And, you know, we can all point out to people that make us angry, you know, people who refuse to follow directives or guidelines. You know, is it any surprise that in a highly individualist society, if you announce massive sweeping restrictions on people's personal activities, there's bound to be at least a small minority who refuse or object? You know, this is (laughs) nothing about that should be too shocking. But by and large, we've seen an, an enormous degree of patience and uh, of conscientiousness and hard work to try to cope with this crisis, even as it has dragged on now several times longer than we were led to expect when it began. I don't know where any of this is going to lead, but I can say that these same people, like my acquaintance here in rural New England, who said, who, who is much more conservative politically than I am, uh, even he said, well, look, we need a new system. And he didn't specify exactly what that meant. But there is, I think, a broad and increasing openness to really significant systemic change. At some point, people recognize that the familiar nostrums are just not working.
So before I talk about my patrons and give a little clip, I'll try to conclude and, and draw together these different things I've been saying by pointing out an interesting fact that I learned that I did not realize, <laughs> I had not put together, and which made me feel foolish. Uh, so through a lot of this summer, I was researching and recording about the Arthurian cycle, the legends of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and how to understand them and interpret them historically. I have said when I was discussing King Arthur, I, I described it as the great the greatest romance, the romance of all romances, in the sense that it's an, a story that allows people to escape into an idealized world, a world of, of heroism, of virtue, that at the same time can reflect on and help us to think about our own world, because it also involves human weaknesses and fatal flaws. And in this way, it makes sense that the Arthur cycle presents a great king who presides over a brief golden age and a great fall in which that sort of golden society collapses because of the shortcomings of the man who embodies it, which is Arthur. And I also discussed the question of whether or not there could be a real King Arthur. You know, I had a patron-only lecture uh, examining the, the historical King Arthur and what maybe we can say about the real prototype that the legends were based upon. And after I had posted them, I happened to watch a short YouTube documentary about the disasters of the 530s and 540s which seems to be a period when there was a wave of diseases, famines, warfare, and political collapses all around the Mediterranean world, through the Byzantine Empire, the Middle East, and even East Asia. And the big and obvious one that maybe some of us have heard of is so-called Justinian's Plague, which was an outbreak of bubonic plague that swept through the Byzantine Empire in the early 540s. Even the Emperor Justinian himself caught it but recovered. Probably about a fifth of the population of Constantinople was killed in this plague. And quite significantly, it seems to have cut short Justinian's grand project of reconquering the Western territories of the empire. And we don't know what would have happened, of course, if this plague hadn't broken out. Now, the theory that this little documentary advanced is that Justinian's plague, like other disasters in much of the world in that period, was caused by climatic cooling, which in turn was the result of a massive eruption of the volcano Krakatoa in Indonesia. So the same volcano that massively erupted in the 1880s, causing a sort of volcanic winter, uh, and that also started erupting again earlier this year, although it doesn't seem it was a major eruption. Uh, there are other scholars who, who do not subscribe to that Krakatoa theory, but who think that it was possibly other volcanic eruptions, maybe in Iceland or in Central America. But regardless, it does seem that there was a sort of wave of cold weather caused by volcanic dust in the air. And that this probably paved the way for 
Justinian's plague. And why would that be? Well, because uh, fleas sometimes pick up bubonic plague bacteria from animals like rodents that might have the bacteria. But it doesn't necessarily matter if they just digest it and it passes through their digestive system. But if the weather is cool enough, if it's cooler than usual, then those fleas, the plague bacteria, the bacillus, will cause a blockage in their digestive tract. And this makes them sort of insatiably hungry, in a sense. They, they keep feeding because they're not properly digesting and absorbing the blood that they consume. And so they, feed, they sort of overfeed. And then if whatever animal they're feeding on, like, say, you know, a, a rat, dies from the bacillus, they then immediately leap to whatever other animal is in the vicinity, even if that's humans, an animal they don't often prefer to bite. So hence they start passing, especially in crowded places, they start to pass the bacillus bacteria from small mammals to humans. And then once a certain number of humans are infected, some of them will get pneumonic plague and then it becomes contagious directly from person to person by breath. It becomes a respiratory pandemic. So it does seem very likely that that's probably what happened in Justinian's plague. Now, what does this have to do with King Arthur? Well, the documentary that I watched also includes a brief commentary on the Arthur legends, and it points out certain facts that I had seen but had completely overlooked and failed to grasp the significance of. And that's that the earliest document that gives us specific dates that it claims relate to King Arthur is the so-called Annales Cambriae, which was probably written in the 10th century in Latin, in Wales. And Annales Cambriae just means Chronicles of Wales. And it simply lays out certain significant events and the dates when they purportedly happened. And the Annales Cambriae, it includes an entry noting the Battle of Baden, which was supposedly Arthur's great military victory, and then also, for the year 537, it has an entry which says in Latin, quote, Gweith camlan inqua Arthur et medraut corurerunt et mortalitas in Britannia et in Hibernia fuit. Basically meaning, in this year, 537, the Battle of Camlan took place in which Arthur and Mordred fell. And there was a death or mortality. The Latin word is mortalitas in Britain and in Ireland. Now, that word mortalitas is often translated as plague, but it doesn't necessarily say that explicitly in the Latin. It just says there was some sort of mass death event, which it claims coincided exactly with the death and downfall of King Arthur. And... We don't know if this disaster really happened, and if so, what it was, but it certainly seems very possible that it was a famine or some sort of other great catastrophe stemming from these volcanic eruptions in the 530s. And then for 10 years later, for the year 547, there's another entry referring to, quote, mortalitas magna, or great death event, and that quite plausibly, could refer to 
plague. And it does seem that bubonic plague did reach Britain for the first time following on the heels of Justinian's plague in the Byzantine Empire. And we know that there was trade and contact between Britain and the Byzantines, particularly through the port trading outpost of Tintagel, which, according to later chronicles, was the birthplace of King Arthur. So it seems very likely that plague made its way from the Mediterranean world into Britain. In this light, it seems very plausible or even likely that the stories of King Arthur took shape as a way to describe what was best and what was most romantic about a period of stability or unity in the early 6th century, which was ended by natural disasters and plague. So in this way, you could see possibly the Arthurian cycle as an idealized and selective retelling of this golden age. And what do we what do we take from this? Well, you can take anything from it. But for one thing, you could say this is a reminder that all societies rise and fall, and this is a part of life. And all civilizations, even the ones that seem apparently eternal or magical, actually are precarious, and they're built on the shifting sands of ecology and the environment. And that even the, the most apparently sturdy structure have weaknesses as well, you know, which Arthur himself is the metaphor for this, that even the most perfect, wise leader has a blind spot, which can cause the structure of his rule to fall. But at the same time, the tales themselves represent this amazing effort over centuries to preserve and embellish what was seen as best, right? And in this way, the life of that period, whatever it really was, goes on, right? All is not lost. The best stories, the highest achievements are reinvented, retold. And in the case of Arthur, of course, there must be enormous embellishment, if only because whatever history, whatever germ of history they were using, it was passed on orally. Whereas today we have writing and all kinds of means of recording over longer periods of time than just the spoken word. So I guess one could say that we should not expect, you know, even, even the structures, the systems, the institutions that seem totally stable and unshakable, we still should not expect them to carry on forever practices and regimes and relationships have to change and they have to adjust and sometimes they have to be abandoned and replaced with something else. We can't expect them to carry on forever, but we can take comfort that regardless, a great deal will be preserved, right? Not everything will not be lost. If whatever, you know, military chieftain in the early 6th century gave inspiration to the Arthur stories, if he lives on as this incredible icon, we should remember that we have much more means of preserving the things and passing on the things that we know, the things that we've done, even through disasters, much more so than the people of early medieval Wales who were overwhelmingly illiterate. So, those again, you know, I'm not making any predictions. I'm just making some comments on 
what I see, what I perceive from a historical perspective. You can take them or leave them as you want. But regardless, as I said, I want to thank my patrons who have made it possible for this podcast to keep going and keep reaching people. As of this moment, I now have 90 patrons. And I've said on Patreon that I want to give some reward when I reach 100 and I'm getting closer. I don't, uh, I'm not totally committed to any particular thing. That What I've proposed is giving some commentary on myself, talking about my own life, my background, my experiences, people like, you know, the confession booth. And I would post that for patrons only. Uh, Maybe I would do a series starting with the easy stuff, which would be my like family background, my extraction. Maybe I talk about my education and my life experiences, including recently running for office. Uh, But if there's anything else that people would be interested in that they would like, as uh, a sort of reward for that milestone, please tell me. Uh, I'd love to hear any suggestions. And uh, if you haven't, please sign on as a patron, or if you have, tell friends and family to, to do so. So my patrons, as I mentioned before, right now there are 90, and I'll go through uh, and thank them, starting with those who have given the most uh, over the total course of the podcast since I started it. And those are Carl Biagetti, Ellen Siskind, Ken Muller, Michael Biagetti, Judy Siskind, Dan Hernandez, John Sullivan, Christine Pacheco, Ozzy Elowich, Peter Goldstein, David Lavery, Carrie Feibel, Gail and Jim Elowich, Rob Balgley, Joseph Murray, Adam Kath, John, Brooke Meachin, Karen Fagan, Kirill Trapeznikov, Amandeep Boyer, Alex Muller, Jeffrey Schulenberger, Anonymous, Christine Gilani, Susan Marsh, Rebecca Mann, Douglas Horgan, Richard Murray, Karen Plaschutznig, Jeannie Lyons, Slate Mills, Colin Gorey, Mike Coffey, Benjamin Newcomb Groiser, Paul is East of the Pecos, Monica Kuniyoshi, Andrew Deldano, Shamant Jila, and Kweku. And then the rest of my patrons as well who have signed on and been supporting are Julia M, ZMK5, Heather Anderson, Michael Sokolovsky, Christopher Grady, Orion Ashmore, David Aslanian, Martin Casey, Spencer, Eric Daffron, Siyuan Soon, Chris Hoffman, Joe, Warren Green, Oliver, Steve Hamlet, June, Carol Schriefter, Lars Rotem Krangnes, Anonymous, Andrew Smith, Christopher White, Joel Star Avalos, Oi Ung, Jonah Horwitz, Sean Greening, Suzanne Lee, Kirsten Lamb, Debbie Davison, Michael Dooley, Sam, David J.J. Newsom, Jay Calhoun, Nettie Nugannon, Michelle McKinnon, Marie-Louise Wayhill, Ichiba, Elizabeth Chamberlain, L.S., Frank Nagurney, Andrea, Chris Ritchie, Edward Tilton, Chris Roberts, Caroline, Charles Ladbrook, Greg Sparling, Victor Payette, John Scrivener, and Seku Sana. So thank you so much. And uh, again, please tell me if you have any feedback, things you want to hear about, or if I pronounced your name wrong. And lastly, I'll close out with a brief random selection from the lecture on the John Winthrop Jr. Alchemical Physician's Chair, which the physician and governor 
and alchemist John Winthrop Jr. used in colonial Connecticut in the 1600s. New England, because in a sense there was no limit to what even a tiny quantity could do. So he had a really dramatic, wide-ranging impact. So, okay, so those are important things to know about this fellow, John Winthrop Jr. What does this chair have to do with it? Uh, Isn't it just a sort of nice decorated oak chair like you would see in any number of well-to-do colonial homes? Well, it may be more than that. And I think it's reasonable to say that there's a lot more meaning packed into this chair than initially meets the eye if you don't know what you're looking for. So it is, as I said, a wainscot chair in the sort of heavy 17th century style. You know, it's it's basically restoration style, kind of bold ornaments that take up the entire surface that are meant to be impressive and imposing. But what do we know about it? Who made it? We actually don't know who produced it. Uh, one historian who's discussed the chair, Neil Camel, theorizes that it was produced by John Elderkin, a builder who lived in New London and who was an English Puritan and a master builder who oversaw things like the creation of John Winthrop Jr.'s mill at New London. But this identification is rejected by some other scholars. For instance, the Chipstone Foundation, which owns some of John Elderkin's other work, does not believe that it was that he was the maker. Rather, they think that it was probably made by Dutch craftsmen in New York, who were also known to be fine furniture makers and supplied a lot of the best furniture around the North American colonies. Well, what does it matter? What makes this attribution important, whether it was Elderkin or someone else? Why argue over it? As I said, it seems fairly typical of a great chair of the Restoration period, except the turned ornamentation on the chair back is unusual. So along the top edge, there's a simple arcade of seven little rounded arches, almost like an arcade on a Romanesque monastery. So not too unusual, but it suggests that there's, it's framing something important, something on the chair back is significant, maybe religiously significant. And inside the, the chair back, sort of facing a person looking at the chair, there is an arrangement of 13 identical carved rosettes which is a little unusual. You know, it's not a vine work pattern. It's, uh, it's not a scene. It's these 13 carved rosettes. And they seem to be in some kind of special configuration. There's one in the center. And around that one in the center, there are three plain circular rings. And then around that, there are eight further rosettes in a ring. And then outside that ring, there are four more rosettes in the four corners. So what could this mean? Is there a reason for this pattern? Well, the one in the center, which seems to sort of stand out, set apart from the others, as if it's in the foreground, that one is, as I said, set apart. And then there are 12 others arranged, you could say, in the background around it. And that configuration mimics alchemical drawings such as the illustration in Robert Flood's book of the circle of urinary colors, 
So it was not uncommon for alchemists to make these sort of wheel-shaped charts showing a ring of little circles, each with a different color, representing a different state of health, which in some way is connected to or influenced by a different heavenly body, maybe a planet or a sign of the zodiac. And in, in the case of Flood, he, he is looking at the different colors of urine that a physician might take from a patient and how to interpret that for what it says about the chemical makeup and the health of the patient. So this is a connection that, uh, that Neil Camel points out. And furthermore, as I said, that central rosette in the middle has three simple rings carved around it. What does that mean? Well, it suggests that this central rosette represents the sun with planets going around it. And the Earth, of course, is the third planet around the sun if you subscribe to the Copernican system as some of the leading thinkers of this time did. So there's some. it's saying something about the relation or the connection between the sun and the Earth among these other heavenly bodies around them.